Welcome to yet another episode of Three Plastic Surgeons and a Microphone. I'm Sam DeJuricar in Dallas, joined as always by Dr. Sam Ree, Paramus, New Jersey, and Dr. Sal Pacella of La Jolla, California. Welcome, gentlemen. Before we get on to today's topic, which is going to be an exciting topic on cheek contouring and buckle fat pad removal by Dr. Sam Ree, Dr. Sal Pacella is going to handle our usual legal business. This show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The show is for informational purposes only. Treatment and results may vary based upon the circumstances, situation, and medical judgment after appropriate discussion. Always seek the advice of your surgeon or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding medical care. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking advice because of something in this show. I think next time I do this disclaimer, I'm going to do it in some sort of Irish brogue or British accent or maybe an Italian accent. I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think Italian <laughs> accent be your accent. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not much of a stretch to do Italian. I think all of those are appropriate accents. You just got to be careful about which accent you choose. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Reed, take it away. All right. We've talked a little bit about buckle fat excision in the past. It's extremely popular. The uh, social media has really taken a hold of it recently and um, run with it. And uh, in fact, our esteemed colleague, Dr. Rod Rory, commented on this a couple months ago. And I'll just show a little video of him talking about it, as well as some of the findings that he had in his, in his paper, which he recently published about it. So let me just pull that up. But for our viewers that may be, not be familiar with the buckle fat pad, it is a piece of fat in the middle of the face, deep into the face, somewhere around the mid-cheek area. And it's been a technique popularized to help thin or slim out the face and augment the cheek lines. Yeah, and it's a, it's a procedure that has been around for a long time. Removal it was popular 20 years ago. It was the Vogue done with, with many, many facelifts. Went away for a while and now is making a popular resurgence. Yes. And in fact, it's going to be interesting because I'll show this, which was recently published a couple of months ago. And you tell me what's changed about it at that point. So it'll be interesting. Have you seen these plastic surgery posts on social media where baby fat from the cheek is popped out literally through a small incision inside the mouth? Buckle fat pad removal went viral due to the striking yet subtle post-op changes where patients emerge with slimmer lower faces and a more defined jawline. Despite the popularity, there's still a lot about the surgical's long-term efficacy we don't really know about. To learn more, the authors of this innovative hot topic performed an in-depth anatomic analysis of the effects of this procedure, short and long-term. Even though the surgery is relatively minor, involving a small incision inside the mouth can be done under local anesthesia and can take only under 30 minutes, it's certainly not without risk. The authors found that excessive traction or aggressive dissection could end up removing more than just the fat pad and could also affect the buccal branches of the facial nerve. This could lead to an excessively hollowed out appearance, premature aging, and nerve damage. They do state that if excision is controlled and limited to the buccal fat pad extension only, the short-term risks are minor. But still, there's no long-term evidence to show what happens to the face without the buccal fat pad over time. Remember, all facial fat compartments are important. 
This fat pad is very different. It, it goes from the superficial and the deep fat. Very important. So the key to understanding facial fat is that the loss of facial fat in the face really predicates how you age. The more you lose, the more you age. That's why modern facial rejuvenation restores volume actually by targeting deflated fat compartments. The authors note that there is indeed evidence that buccal fat pad does diminish naturally as we age, but how much it does dissipate is still unknown. More evidence and long-term studies will be needed to determine if removing buccal fat to get that oval, beautiful heart-shaped face and defined jawline when you're younger and does it truly not cause premature aging. But for now, the authors conclude that in the hands of a skilled plastic surgeon, this procedure can be performed safely. It is best reserved for those patients with naturally full round faces that have fullness in the front of their lower cheek above the jawline. Even if a procedure is trending on social media like Instagram, it might not be right for you. That's why we always encourage our patients to do their homework the more that's a great synopsis i love how uh dr rourke <laughs> refers to the authors in the third person even though he's the lead author on that paper <laughs> he is one of the he, he is the lead author and 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 the rest of the authors were were one another one's one of my partners at present and another one was a fellow who was with us so i know all of these guys and they're all great plastic surgeons i think that's a great review though when when buckle fat pad um, removal was done a lot in the 1990s, early 2000s, even the late 1980s, we were very much in the mindset in plastic surgery that removing fat was the key. Dr. Pacella is the eyelid expert amongst the three of us, but he certainly, I'm sure, was dealing with many patients who 20 or 30 years ago had lower eyelid surgery where their lower eyelids were totally hollowed out. We would take out fat from the lower eyelids. We would do facelifts or we would do mastectomies or take out large amounts of facial fat. And buccal fat pattern removal went as well. And it gave people a very chiseled look, which looked awesome in the short term. But as they, as they advanced five, seven, ten years down the road, it made them look prematurely older. And so it's interesting that this procedure has made a comeback. I will say that I've been doing more of it than I thought I would do. And I'll even have this conversation with patients and I'll tell them, you're going to look older when we do this. And they all have a very quick retort, which is I'll get filler or facial fat put back in later on. And so I think, I feel like patients know that, but they very much in the short term are, are liking the chiseled look that they get from fat pad removal. Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting because I, I rarely have patients come in specifically asking for this procedure. That It's rare that someone would say, I want my buccal fat pad removed. I read about it or I saw it on social media. But it is part of a comprehensive kind of assessment of the face and tailoring your, your, your treatment. So, for example, in young patients, this, can this technique can work very well if you have a full face around them and your jaw is a little widened. I usually use this in combination with not only direct excision through the mouth that can be done under local anesthesia, but I also give patients a bit of Botox, two or three injections of Botox into this, this area here called the masseter muscle. Many of these patients have hypertrophy of this muscle, which gives their face a much more boxy look. And so I think the combination of adding Botox there and doing the buccal fat pad can really make a huge difference. Yeah, I think when I do these cases, they're in relatively younger patients. I usually do some sort of adjunctive technique like masseter Botox injection, just like Sal said. And they usually 
get a very nice slimming effect. It's funny because Stuzan and Kawamoto wrote about this. And I'll, if you want, I'll show you the video that they did 30 years ago operatively about how to take this out, which was really exactly the same as it is now. And even then, Stuzan was pretty adamant about being pretty conservative about how much fat he took out. He said maybe two, four grams, something like that. Yeah. And everyone knows at that point, what the risks were. And like uh, Sam says, it's made a big comeback. I'm I'm seeing more and more of these. I try to start with something relatively non-invasive, like the Botox to the masseter first. If they feel like they need to get some more slimming, I'll turn to the buckle fat pad in addition. Sometimes some neck lipo can be helpful too. And I'll show a case where we did that, but I'll just throw up an operative picture. Or, or Annette, And then we'll Annette, see what that looks like. As you're saying that, the only thing that I would... Uh say is, is different in my experience than Sal's is I have lots of people coming in asking specifically for this. They'll call it buccal fat pad. No one calls it the buckle fat pad. <laughs> and they all think I'm pronouncing it wrong when I call it the buckle fat pad. But literally, probably every six weeks, I have a patient, a younger patient, early 20s, mid, mid to late 20s deal, who specifically is requesting buckle fat pad removal. And so it's rare for me to actually make this something that I primarily bring up with someone, even though I do it every six or eight weeks on someone, but it's driven by patients in my, in my, in my practice. And you know, just like you guys, I'll do some Botox into the masseter. I, I commonly will do some, some submental and neck liposuction, usually using a radio frequency technique as well, just to really tighten the jawline and all in combination, it gives them a much more chiseled look when they're done. So let me show you a, a little bit of a diagram and we can talk about the actual procedure here. So the buckle or buccal in Texas, fast pad, is actually pretty large and it actually extends all the way up over the temporal muscle. And what we really get is just the little bit of it that extends down into the mouth. And as Dr. Rourke said, it's pretty straightforward. It can be done under 30. You basically find the second maxillary molar, you make a, you know, the Stenson's duct, and you just make a small incision. And the key to this is that even though it's a small procedure, there are structures in this area that have profound functional issue importance. And Stenson's duct is the opening where the parotid gland basically empties into the mouth. And if you were to lacerate it or misidentify it or somehow damage it, you're going to have a huge problem afterwards for something that you thought was a really small procedure. In addition, as Dr. Rorick mentioned, there are buccal band branches of the facial nerve, which are very close to the buccal fat pad. You can literally see, or not here, but you can, you, they are literally right there. And the facial nerve innervates the muscles of your face. So you can get a facial paralysis if this is improperly done. So what is the yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I ask you, is that, would you say that that incision is accurate to where you make it? No, I make it actually well away from Stenson's, probably about closer to the gingiva of the second maxillary molar. And, and just in case our viewers are not clear, can you tell them what the parotid gland is and the parotid duct and what Stenson's duct actually is and what the problems are if you do damage that? Right. So it's good. Thanks for reminding. It's a salivary gland. So you actually have saliva that's produced in the parotid gland that is being tunneled or piped through this duct that goes from the gland that is right around your ear through the cheek into your mouth. And if you were to somehow damage it or block it, you would basically block the passage of saliva 
into your mouth, you could get a huge collection of saliva, which we've seen not in these cases, but in trauma where I, we've all dealt with facial trauma before where this duct was lacerated. And it's not a joke to have to reconstruct it. And did you guys ever encounter that in your travails in facial trauma? Oh yeah. At, at Michigan, I had a gentleman who got into a bar fight with a glass and had a, a nice stellate laceration right over this area. It was about four in the morning and I figured out pretty quickly that he had lacerated stents and ducts. And uh, the interesting thing was I, I placed a little uh, piece of suture on the inside of his mouth, threw the duct on the inside of the mouth, and then it came right out straight out into the wound. So I knew immediately that was the duct was, was violated. So interesting. I saw, I saw a patient who had had uh, a buccal fat fat taken out elsewhere and had persistent swelling in the side of their face for two or three months and wasn't really getting anywhere with their, their primary surgeon who was not a plastic surgeon. And so they ended up seeing me and they had a persistent salivary collection inside their mouth. By that point, when you're that far out, it's impossible to reconstruct Stenson's duct. So drain was placed. They needed compression over that area. They needed what we call agents to, to basically try to suppress salivary production. It's a big to-do if that actually happens. Took uh, from the time that they came in to the time that it was no longer a problem. Took, took several weeks. I want to say almost three months to finally resolve. So it can be a huge problem. Absolutely. Now, Sam, getting back to that incision again. So you, you make your incision in between Stenson's duct and the second molar or right, right at that same level, but closer to the, to the teeth. I will usually make it a little bit closer. Well, it depends. Yeah. So I will make it a little bit closer to the, well, this is not really that accurate. Honestly, I feel like Stenson's duct is farther out a little bit and there's more space mm. between the mm -hmm. mucosa of the second maxillary mo uh, molar. There's more space there in which to make your incision. Yeah. And so you, how about yourself? I usually go a little bit more pos posterior than what this shows um, and kind of work my way back a little bit. Just so that's the approach I use for, for facial trauma and I kind of know the exposure fairly well. So I, I think they're trying to show it by the second maxillary molar, but the teeth are so crowded together in there. It doesn't look that posterior, but if you think about where it actually is in the, se the second maxillary molar and how much harder it is to see relative in this picture, it's, it's, it's a little bit misleading, but yeah, what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll go again. I agree with, I agree with Sam that the Stenson's ducts is a little bit is not so close to the incision, but I think that's just because of the way the picture was drawn. You go, I go right in the sulcus, mm -hmm. make an incision, dissect, uh, using a, a pair of scissors. So you see the buccinator, uh, muscle, you tease through those fibers and it should just pop out. So. Yeah. It's a little, the, if you've never done it, I remember the first couple of times, well, I did it all the time in my craniofacial fellowship because we would make cuts for our maxillary osteotomies and you would always get into it, even though you didn't want to get into it, which was really <laughs> annoying. But when the first time I intentionally did it, it was where I wanted to get to the buccal fat pad. You actually have to pop through the fascia a little bit, and it takes a little bit of doing to make sure you're a little bit confident to get through that buccinator and, and then get into that, into that fat pad. So it does take a little bit of finesse to be, and to be able to know exactly where you are and, and to make sure that you're in there. And then once you're there, I just, I tease out, how do you judge how much to take out? For me, it's more like I look at the patient, I see how much external fullness there is in the buccal fat pad. And I always take out just a little bit less than I think I really need in order to achieve the look that I think 
the patient wants. I tried to tease it out, let it fall out naturally. And whenever naturally extrudes, I take out, I try not to pull out and transect at the same time. I just, whatever naturally falls out when you pop through all that is what I'll take out. Less is more, I think. Yeah, that's a, I, I do a similar technique and it's very similar to what I would do for removing upper eyelid fat. If somebody's really excessive, I just kind of gently press on the globe and just let let's gravity kind of dictate what comes out. Same sort of concept here. And I'm always kind of looking at the opposite side to just make sure I'm not creating an excessive indentation or anything like that. Again, a lot of it is experience. As you, as you can tell, listening to Sam and Sal, but when you do it, it's what you feel based on your feedback uh, on the patient and your experience, what's appropriate. So that, yeah, that really- one, one. One other uh, point to make here is, is that not, not certainly not for the faint of heart as a surgeon, but you know, if you're doing a, a facelift and the newer techniques of deep extended facelifts, you're not far away from this plane to tease out the buccal fat, you, but you have to be exceptionally gentle. So, so many times if I'm planning a buccal fat pad removal and I'm doing a deep extended facelift. I'll lift up my tissue, go underneath the smas, take it extended deep into the face, make sure I'm not damaging any of the nerves. And you really just have to gently spread and you can get, you can get a good handle on this buckle fat pad externally. But again, not for the faint of heart. I haven't done a deep plane facelift in like 25 years probably. And I don't plan on doing it anytime soon. You're right. That's, <laughs> it, it takes balls to be able to do that. That's all I can say. Yeah, I, I, I also don't do deep plane facelifts. This is a patient who had a buccal fat pad excision. She also had a little bit of submental liposuction. And she actually came back. She, this is, she came specifically for buccal fat pad excision and, and lipo. And then after this, we also did masseter muscle uh, injections of Botox subsequent to that, which I don't have her most recent pictures on. But she was really happy with the results. She felt like she went from looking like a kid to basically like a young adult, which is what she is. And again, it just helps to contour and narrow the face a little, the jawline. It's not for everybody as we discussed, but for certain uh, patients, it's, it's very powerful. That's great. I, I think, I think, it's, yeah, really I, I, result, I think everything yeah. you did works in concert you can see that she has a little bit of dimpling of the lower cheek area. That's the specific effect for our viewers of the buckle fat pad. It makes her look like she has more cheekbone definition. Then there's slimming of the jawline, which is a combination of the injections of Botox that you did. And then the side view really shows the effect of the, of the neck liposuction, just how much, how much more acute we call the cervical mental angle is she just has a much more defined jawline. And even though I'm sure she's the same weight as she was beforehand, she looks much more chiseled. So really nice result. Great job. All right. Thanks. Any other thoughts about buckle fat pad excision or, uh, cheek contouring itself or Dr. Rorick and his, his informational do, video. Do you, do, do either of you ever use the buckle fat pad as a donor for other facial fat? I never have done that. When I did craniofacial, we use it all the time as a uh, pedicle graft for um, palatal fistulas for s yeah small defects. And it worked great, um, especially in younger patients who seem to have a lot of it, obviously, because it seems to be very bulky in, in children. I need to remember this technique more for facial fat grafting as well, because there are some patients I know that probably would actually benefit from 
repurposing it and redirecting it to Mailer or other areas. I just keep forgetting that that's something that I should use. Do you use it a lot, Sal? Not, not a ton. I, I think about it much more than I actually do it. Just because majority of my facial aesthetic patients, I'm doing a larger volume of fat anyway that I'm harvesting from the abdomen and just it's a little bit more precise, but I know yeah. people do excise it, chop it up, lay it down, you know. I think I think with the newer facial fat grafting techniques that are out there that I know you're using, it's it just the, the quality of fat when you have it in a syringe and it's you're injecting great. it. Yeah, the buckle fat yeah. pad would, would be kind of lumpy and irregular. Yeah. I think if you think about the yeah, eyelid, more which you do so much in, and if you're using fractionated fat, I'd, I'd be worried about using the buckle fat pad in that scenario. And in terms of Sam's question, I think Dr. Warwick's synopsis is is actually perfect. I, I think that it is very popular. It has a role in defining the jawline. It can definitely help with a chiseled look. For younger patients, know that there are long-term implications of doing this. So if you're okay continuing this whole facial rejuvenation process in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, like most of the people we see are for, in their 40s and 50s and 60s, know that you will have to reverse the effects of doing this procedure. But there's definitely benefits to doing it as part of a more comprehensive approach now. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Look, you'll look just like Sal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day, guys. You guys do as well. Take care.